Welcome back to the Burning Phoenix podcast. Hope you're having a great morning and a great day. In this episode, we're going to talk about C.S. Lewis and myth, and especially the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice as a kind of a meta myth, how this relates to the brain hemispheres and this idea that the like the allegory, the symbolism of Orpheus trying to look straight back at Eurydice when they are trying to go out of the underworld could be something like trying to make explicit myth, mythology, right hemisphere knowledge. If you try to look directly at it, it vanishes and disappears and it's something to be experienced and understood in a more holistic way. So we're going to look at the words of C.S. Lewis about this and then we're also going to look at how McGilchrist is is, uh, viewing this in the light of the hemisphere hypothesis and what we can learn from this also in terms of what reason is. So first we just want to play a little clip from the one of the two courses uh, at Hillsdale about C.S. Lewis uh, by Dr. David M. Whalen. Uh, it's a really nice course. He's one of the, the several, there are four or five different lecturers, but he has the part about fiction and C.S. Lewis. And there's an episode about the, the Space Trilogy and it says here, quote, that Lewis emphasizes the fact that human nature is beyond the human will, the importance of objective truth and the beauty of family. For Lewis, space is not an empty vacuum to be explained by scientific discovery, but is instead filled with vitality and liveliness and is a beauty to behold. And it's interesting at the end here how this is exactly referring to how the left and the right brain uh, are looking at the world the scientific discovery is the left brain, to see the cosmos when you look out at the stars at night, if you see this field with like as a, something living with vitality and beauty and you have awe and wonder, that is the right hemisphere's way of looking at the world and kind of being in itself. So it's very interesting to discover here how, how precisely C.S. Lewis is intuiting the differences between the hemisphere, even though he never... Uh, he doesn't refer to this. This wasn't known at the time, but it was experienced by everybody, like how you experience your own thinking, and is is expressed for thousands of years. But it's interesting now to see that it is also technically really precise in the way that he describes it. So we're going to play this little clip. It's one and a half minutes uh, by Dr. David M. Whalen. So in the late 17th century, there was a uh, very vigorous discussion uh, about the nature of what was called wit and whether a good mind, what characterized a good mind? Was it, was it really good at distinguishing things, um, distinguishing between things, or was it in seeing likenesses in things? Was a good mind a mind that took things apart, analysis, dissection, atomization, or was a good mind a mind that pulled things together in synthesis, composition, integration? I know that all sounds very abstract, but stick with me. The overwhelming answer modernity has made to that question is the former. Knowledge is in separating things, distinguishing things, analyzing things. If I go to a student, if I go into a class and say, all right, guys, you're going to write a paper uh, analyzing uh, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, all the students would go, "Mm." 
they're comfortable. If I walked in and I said, okay, guys, uh, you're all going to write a paper synthesizing the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. They would, uh, you know, what? What do you mean? What do you mean? We, we, it's one of our default settings, again, in the imagination. Analysis and the separation of things is what constitutes wisdom and knowledge. Lewis knows better. He's a student of the classical world and the medieval world and the early renaissance. He knows very well that synthesis is of value as well, at least as much as is analysis. So there we have really precisely describing some of the features with this to separate, to analyze or to unify and to see the whole picture. So it's just beautiful to see how, how precise and how succinct Lewis made this. And also that he, he is now referring to what we can draw from the ancient world, the medieval times and the early renaissance times, which is exactly what we've been doing also on our podcast, The Ancient World, looking at kind of like Dante and back, the Renaissance and backwards in time as a source of inspiration and wisdom and beauty and knowledge. And that is the era of history that is much more balanced and has much more the element of the right hemisphere and kind of this overall picture from the right hemisphere. So we're now going to see how McGilchrist is talking about this topic. So this is from the chapter about reason. He has two chapters on reason. And then he describes, he's defining reason as, quote, reason suggests a linear way of thinking, seeking chains of causation, which makes sense only in a limited environment. Its mode of operation is local, one bit at a time. And then the other one, reason suggests a global holistic understanding, which makes sense only in the round. It is a seamless apprehension of the world. Reason means different things and has in particular two distinct meanings. And then the second kind he suggests here can only be offered by a living, fully feeling embodied being since it draws on value and on the vast complex store of human experiences. So this is like two different ways of using what we would call reason. And then also the, the, the right hemisphere version of reason sees the big picture and sees that the details are inevitably subordinate to that bigger picture. It's also interesting to note just linguistically that in English there is just the word reason. But in other languages you have two different concepts. In the German you have Verstand and Vernunft. In Latin you have Ratio and Intellectus. In Greek you have Dianoia and Nous. So this is very interesting in terms of knowing that, like there's a limitation in the English language that we don't have a distinct way of referring to one or the other. There are other ways of looking at languages that, for example, to know something, you have uh, in many languages you have the, the know of, be familiar with something over time, or the idea of just knowing a fact. Those two ways of knowing are uh, has they have different words in many languages so um that's the part with just the, the setup with reason and then when mckilchrist continues to talk about myth and referring c.s lewis there's a really nice quote from lewis which is myth is the isthmus which connects the peninsular world of thought with that vast continent we really belong to so just one more time. Myth is the isthmus which connects the peninsular world of thought with that vast continent we really belong to. 
So it's just that we can intuit, we can point to a vast area of knowledge and the whole right hemisphere world of understanding. And we can access this and help us reach it through myth as this uh, connection between our conscious thought and, and what we can then learn from. So when we look at the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, there, is, uh, there are many meanings to this, but this one meta meaning about myth itself is so interesting. So Orpheus was a demigod and he, uh, his uh, mother was one of the muses, his father was a Thracian prince and his mother gave him the gift of music. And then everyone was drawn to his lyre. He could move animals and trees and also rocks and stones and even alter the course of rivers by the power of his music alone. And then he loves a nymph called Eurydice. They marry. Shortly after, she is bitten by a viper. She dies. And then Orpheus tries to go to the underworld and rescue her. And through his music, he is then um, kind of <laughs> winning the approval of the gods. So they relented. And then... He was allowed to take Eurydice back on one condition, that he must not look directly at her while he was leading her out up into the upper world again. So then they start walking, and then at the last minute, when they were almost at the mouth of the cave, he could not, like Orpheus, could not contain himself any longer. He turned and looked at his bride, and with cries of joy he ran to embrace her, but she vanished before his eyes and she was drawn back to the underworld, never to be seen by him again. So here comes then Louis' idea of what we can learn about the nature of myth itself from this little story about Orpheus and Eurydice. So Louis is writing, In the enjoyment of a great myth, we come nearest to experiencing as a concrete what can otherwise be understood only as an abstraction. At this moment, for example, I'm trying to understand something very abstract, the fading, vanishing of tasted reality as we try to grasp it with discursive reason. So already here, Lewis is really describing the different experience and how we move back and forth between our hemispheres when we try to entertain or understand or explore an idea or a story. The right brain would, would enjoy the story and understand it more intuitively. And then the, the left brain comes in and tries to pick it apart and find little bits and then try to create a little model. But then it reduces it, which is a major part of the problem. So it says there, If I remind you instead of Orpheus and Eurydice, how he was suffered to lead her by the hand, but when he turned round to look at her, she disappeared. What was merely a principle becomes imaginable. You may reply that you never until this moment attached that meaning to that myth. Of course not. You are not looking for an abstract meaning at all. If that was what you were doing, the myth would be for you no true myth but a mere allegory. You were not knowing but tasting. But what you were tasting turns out to be a universal principle. And last part, the moment we state this principle, we are admittedly back in the world of abstraction. It is only while receiving the myth as a story that you experience the principle concretely. So it's also... Like if you just thought about this for the first time now and that that story and that Orpheus turning around to see Eurydice and she disappears is a way of, of your left brain taking a story and trying to 
concretize or kind of pick apart or analyze one specific point that it then vanishes for you. Uh, like Lewis is describing here is that once we did that, now you just created one more item of understanding and insight, but it's still not the whole story. So we extracted one more of potentially unlimited amounts of, of knowledge from the, the big, deep myths and the mythology that can teach us something. But again, it's just important to know the difference between that explicit meaning or wisdom and then the story in itself, which is much bigger and cannot be contained by this way of extracting things that the left hemisphere tries to do. So it's just a big argument for the beauty, the, the wisdom and the vastness of the left hemisphere in itself. So uh, that's all we wanted to say in this episode, just looking at this myth and how C.S. Lewis is creating connections here. And then we can now, uh, some 60, 70, 80 years later, we can look at this and then we can just confirm through a scientific and then admittedly a left brain uh, perspective through McGilchrist that this is actually correct. But it adds something to it that we now can even more understand how our thinking works and how important it is to keep the left brain at bay at times, to access a much bigger uh, continent of wisdom, and then also just learning through being familiar with the hemispheres, learning how to make a balance, which is the point again, and that the, both of our brains can work together, and then that opens up for a much bigger and more beautiful apprehension of the world, and it then it's also a way to avoid the excesses and the perils of the left brain. So with that, I hope this was some helpful input, both for Lewis and McGilchrist, what we, was, we were reading from uh, the, the, his last book, The Matter with Things, that came out in 2021. So uh, again, hope this was uh, helpful and maybe inspiring. And thanks so much for listening. Thanks for tuning in and see you again in the next episode. Mm-hmm.